Welcome back to the Guidehouse Transportation Insights Podcast for May 19th, 2022. I'm Sam Abu Al Samad with the Transportation Analyst Team here at Guidehouse. Uh, and as usual, I'm joined by Scott Shepard, uh, Christian Albertson, and Joe Janata. Uh, Scott, why don't we start with you this week? All right. Thanks, Sam. Uh, yeah, so this week uh, I'd like to talk about Daimler Trucks's uh, recent announcement that they're going to start series production of the Freightliner E Cascadia. And a little background on the E Cascadia: it is um, the electric version of the Cascadia, and um, that is uh, basically a Class Eight uh, semi truck uh, day cab configuration. Um, at least for the eCascadia version, it's a, a day cab configuration. So it's uh, intended to do, you know, not your long haul semi truck routes, but more so your regional deliveries, uh, the ones that can occur within a day. Um, but overall, you know, the um, the development of this truck is has been ongoing for for quite some time. Uh, Freightliner first started, or Daimler Trucks slash Freightliner, the brand of Daimler Trucks first started deploying the truck uh, for real-world trials back in 2018. Um, and since then, you know, not only uh, exploring trials with the, the technology, Daimler Trucks has also been one of, a, of the leading partners in the development of, uh, of the megawatt charging standard, which in the future... Uh, is likely to power vehicles like this. Um, these would be dedicated charging stations uh, supporting charging sessions of um, over a megawatt or more um, for for these Class A trucks and would largely be deployed at, at stations and sort of inner city arrangements. In the near term, the series production that uh, they're talking about starting in 2022 and, and delivery deliveries to begin shortly thereafter um, would likely be using 350 uh, KW chargers uh, in the um, at in public charging networks but at, at fleet depots you're likely to see them using uh, something a little lower uh, some of the specs of the vehicle that are important to note are that um, the there are a few different options for battery size, uh, going from about just under 200 kilowatt hours to about 440 kilowatt hours, and their estimated average range for the vehicle, um, which is going to depend on what battery size uh, is is built into the vehicle they estimate that the typical range is probably going to be around 230 miles. Um, so kind of in that mid range for battery capacity, obviously the 440 kilowatt hour battery would, would likely produce uh, a longer range, but there are a lot of variables to that depending on um, how the vehicle is loaded as, as well as what terrain it's going over and, and a variety of other forces. It's interesting to note that um, they, they don't provide ranges associated with each battery pack, but they do provide um, charge times for them. And so with the smaller battery packs, there's uh, somewhat of almost no benefit, a little bit of a benefit to how fast that battery pack can charge from, uh, from 
basically zero to 80% or, or, or to a relative full charge. Um, they're reporting that for the near 200 kilowatt hour battery pack, it takes about one and a half hours uh, to get to, to full charge um, at minimum, three hours at maximum. And then for the 290 kilowatt hour option, it's two to four hours. And then for the 440, it's also uh, two hours at minimum to six hours, uh, which is indicative of how the battery management system is uh, basically moderating the flow of um, power capacity into the battery with uh, more power capacity being delivered for the um, larger battery packs. And that's, that's to be expected um, as uh, larger battery pack capacities are likely to absorb um, higher charging rates much more easily or much more safely than um, smaller battery packs. So, so that all makes sense. Um, but it, is an, it, it does provide an interesting um, uh, preview, I would suppose, about how these vehicles will likely be used um, you know, the range and, and the specs on charging are, are indicative of, of um, a certain type of route in the uh, freight business. You know, it's either short runs, kind of shuttle services between warehouses or, uh, or short routes between uh, certain uh, nodes along various logistics networks, like, like from uh, major ports to warehouses that are not too too far from the ports. Um, relative to other competitors in the space, uh, this is this is coming shortly after Volvo Trucks deployed uh, their uh, electric Class Eight truck to to the market, um, and of course is ahead of uh, quite a few other options that are coming to the market. Um, <clears throat> From, from other suppliers. Uh, but uh, ultimately, you know, we're starting to see more of the brands that are in North America adopting the technology and, and rolling it out in 2022 uh, and 2023. So an important development for uh, the electrification of logistics. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting, uh, you know, just yesterday or today, I guess, actually, uh, you know, they just announced that Cisco, the uh, food service company, is um, going to be a major customer for the eCascadia. They ordered 800 of these that they're planning to deploy over the next four years. Um, you know, and as you, as you were mentioning, you know, that's that's the kind of business, you know, for a lot of what they do, you know, they do deliveries of food to restaurants and, and so on. Um, and uh, that's, you know, a perfect application for this kind of truck, you know, mostly shorter routes, you know, lo- more local and regional routes. Um, have, has Daimler given any indication of what the cost differential is between um, the eCascadia and a, a diesel version? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. We've done modeling uh, on the cost differences between 40 ton trucks and diesel trucks more generally, um, with the uh, with the cost being somewhat in the range of I think it's been like I want to say purchase cost being about fifty percent higher, but don't hold me to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but ultimately, 
while the costs of of the trucks are significantly more at the end of the day, whatever it is, the the payback is is quite attractive, especially in today's oil price environment. Um, unlike the light duty vehicle segment, where um, you know your purchase cost is likely paid back slower over over you know a number of years due to how much you use the vehicle um, with with this trucking segment, you just put on a lot more miles for the vehicle in general, and therefore the the payback period is is much quicker. And uh, the companies who operate these vehicles are going to be a lot more sensitive to the cost dynamics of these vehicles, the operating cost dynamics. So they just, I, in financial terms, they have typically a better discount rate <laughs> uh, for um, uh, for operational costs than do your typical customers. So, you know, the, the order by Cisco is, is, um, is, is a good sign. We've also seen a lot of, uh, those types of orders come out of Europe where the market has been a little bit ahead of what we've seen in North America. So some of the major suppliers in, in Europe have been, uh, uh, making similar hundred vehicle type orders of the suppliers that are currently in, uh, are in Europe as well. Um, yeah, recently, um, you wrote uh, a white paper for the Fuels Institute that was published on decarbonization of medium and heavy duty vehicles. And one of the things that, that uh, came out of that was that while um, from an environmental perspective, um, long haul trucking could be, you know, could gain a lot because the, the number of vehicles relative to the percentage, the share of emissions that they produce is relatively small. So they, they produce a disproportionate amount of the CO2 emissions. Um, you know, you found that uh, they're probably, at least for the foreseeable future, they're not necessarily very amenable to electrification. But but this type of application, I think, you know, definitely works a lot better, the, the regional hall, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and the regional haul is is a significant chunk of those emissions. It's not the the greatest chunk, but it's uh, certainly a, a significant chunk. And ultimately, electrifying it is going to be critical to positioning electrification to compete for long haul, um, which is at the end of the day just uh, significantly more difficult. Um, to electrify for a lot of different reasons. Um, one being a lack of charging infrastructure. And by that, I don't mean the deployment of, of chargers around highways or, or in a network sort of format, but simply the existence of the charger technology to deploy um, needs to be achieved first. So, so there are are developments ongoing right now uh, to take the momentum that is occurring within this segment to build that charging technology and then deploy it. Uh, So it's all part of sort of a long-term strategy to to position electrification for that long-haul market. But, you know, outside of that infrastructure issue, there's also other issues tied to the, um, the ownership pattern of of vehicles serving that long haul market. So, so there are just generally a lot of challenges with that market, but ultimately this is the first step in that direction. Yeah, actually one on that one is, is I live in the Savannah, Georgia area. So we have a, a huge port here in town and um, 
over the last four or five years, especially, there's been a, a huge increase in the amount of the the warehouses being built where stuff is taken from the port to these warehouses by those day cab type vehicles. And I'd, I'd be interested to see if there's any orders popping up on the local companies here in town just to see what's going on because it's um, one of the biggest complaints of the people who live in these areas is now you have all these big, noisy, smelly, smoky trucks running through uh, neighborhoods they weren't running through before because of where they've put these warehouses. So I would definitely love to see something like that come to this area because we could really use those. So, um, but Mike, you, you came up with one interesting thing. There was the, the, the patterns for those who are the ownership and the owner operators of these vehicles. You know, when you're, you're driving a, a semi for, a company, whether it's long haul or whatever, you, you if you're an owner operator, you get to charge more per mile because you have to pay for your own fuel on that as well. If you are working for somebody, they you you get paid less per mile because you're not paying for fuels and stuff like that. Um, so my my question then would be looking at that, what kind of difference do you see? on that per mileage per mile cost for delivering uh whether it's you know how much or i guess what i'm trying to say is what's the difference between a a a conventionally diesel fuel vehicle versus an electric on that per mileage cost is there a huge difference in that yeah i mean it, it's a little early to say uh in all honesty especially for for certain types of use cases for the regional case, which I think is, is the safest one. Um, it's, it's going to be significantly lower, especially in the current oil price environment. You know, the, the general factors you, you think about when it comes to this is that on a, on a BTU level, electricity right now is probably uh, on par with, with diesel. Once again, on, on BTU, BTU per or dollar per BTU. Um, but then your uh, efficiency, your energy efficiency in BTU miles per BTU is going to be significantly greater for electricity. So in terms of energy use, you know, the factor there is anywhere from uh, about two and a half to, to three and a half times more efficient on electricity. So, you know, I translate to that, that to be quite significant savings um, for, for electricity. And then there are also, um, anticipated savings from, uh, maintenance cost reductions. Um, but there are also other financial elements to the equation that just aren't well-defined yet. For instance, what is the battery life? Um, and what's going to be the cost of battery to swap out and when would that need to happen? Um, and how would that be either more expensive or less expensive than swapping out a, out a diesel engine? Um, there's also issues about insurance and how these vehicles should be insured or you know, the premium for their insurance, given that there's a little bit of uncertainty regarding the longevity of the battery, especially in these different use cases. So I think 
you know, to, to your point where you have that owner operator environment where your driver might be the owner of the vehicle, um, it's, it's a bit hard for them to adopt right now because there is so much uncertainty. And in a lot of ways, there's just not the technology availability for them at this point. They can't take their truck to a public charging station, for instance. Their, their truck would just simply not fit in the spaces that are available for chargers today. So that all has to be developed. Um, or they'd have to charge it at the port where they're picking it up which might be an option or at the customer site, which would be likely less of an option customer site being the end point of the route they're on. So, so there are a lot of challenges for owner operators right now that the fleets like Cisco or DFDS in Germany are better positioned to handle because they have those depots where they can install charging infrastructure or they can work with, um, either customers, uh, on their networks or um, or nodes at like the port uh, to establish charging infrastructure for themselves and other partner uh, corporations like themselves. All right, yeah. I'm just sorry, just thinking about the, you know, I've, I've got a couple of friends here in town that own trucking companies and I'm just trying to think of their uh, economics on that and how that would work for them. So, well, thank you. Christian, you're up yeah. next. All right. So um, last uh, few times uh, we've been, or a few times ago, we were talking about the eVTOL aircraft and the um, urban air mobility that's that's going to be taking over the world here soon. Um, so Joby Aviation is uh, looking to have their aircraft um, up and flying and certified, certified being the keyword, by 2024. And then hope to be making about 26,000 of these aircraft per year here soon. And in the first few years, hope to be making 34,000 flights per day with these aircraft. So the problem is that certification. So how do you certify a eVTOL aircraft, an electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft? It's not an airplane, so it can't be certified as a standard airplane. And it's not a helicopter because it doesn't fly like a standard helicopter. Yeah, it may take off like a helicopter, but it flies like an airplane. So it's kind of that hybrid type model. Um, so the FAA is what they're is looking into um, kind of a hybrid type of certification for these aircraft. And kind of what's, what's really neat about it is they're kind of picking and choosing. Okay, well, when it's an airplane, it flies like an airplane, so it needs these certifications. When it's a helicopter, it needs these certifications. So they're kind of picking and choosing and um, setting up their certification process to be under a special class of its own. Because the Joby aircraft is different from any other aircraft out there. They're all eVTOLs, but they're still have, they're still completely different. So everything that they're doing is going to set up a new special framework um, for these certifications. Um, there's no set time on when this will be done, uh, but they're looking at a, uh, as soon as this is done, this framework will then be presented to 
these um, aircraft manufacturers and say, okay, these are the rules, you know, one from column A, one from column B, one from column C that you have to fit into and make sure your aircraft fits into those. Then they can go through the certification process. Um, we've mentioned the certification process before for the FAA, and it, it, they move it at very slow speeds when it comes to these certifications. Um, and from what I understand, the, the couple of the articles that I've read about this, the FAA is actually a little bit um, not scared, but uh, wary about Joby's time frame. Because Joby wants these to be certified and flying in you know, late 2023 and enter service in 2024. And because the framework isn't built and the certifications aren't completed, they can't even start the certification process of this. So this is a big step when they, they decided to, okay, it's going to be a special aircraft. It's going to be a kind of a, like I said, a hodgepodge of certifications for both aircraft put in there. So, um, Hopefully, <laughs> if all goes well, uh, the FAA should have something set up early or late this year, or early next for these certifications and start uh, to being able to go through the certification process process with Joby, um, Beta, uh, a couple others that are right there ready to go. Joby seems to be in the front, forefront right now here in the U.S. So hopefully... If, if all goes well, we will have new rules and regulations for the FAA. Um, there'll be a, let's see, it's, I'm not going to bore you with <laughs> the, it's 14 CFR part 23 is for normal category air, aircraft and 21.17 uh, B is the special class framework. So that's what we're looking at right now and, and Keeping our fingers crossed, hopefully see some of these Joby aircraft in the air next year. So what's the typical certification timeline like for either your your plane or your or your helicopter? Okay, so there's no such thing as a typical time frame. Yeah. Um, it moves at, at the speed of the FAA. Um, however, if you're going to go from a brand new... Um, clean sheet design aircraft. So you start with clean piece of paper and build a new aircraft that can take eight to 12 years to get that aircraft certified. If you are, um, if you're, if you're taking say a 737 and making it a 737 two, for instance, I'm just throwing a number out there. There's plenty of extra, uh, or and dash eight or whatever. You're allowed to use your initial certification for that aircraft and submit the changes for that are those changes are what gets recertified. And that takes a lot less time because there are fewer changes that need to be certified versus an entire aircraft that needs to be certified. So uh, Gulfstream here in Savannah type of thing, the, uh, the latest uh, 550, 650, uh, 500, 400, 750, 850 are all considered G4s. It's a G4-10, G4-11. They're all under the same type certification 
Therefore, Gulfstream can use that certification and make changes to the aircraft enough where it, it makes it a new aircraft, but it's still under the same type certification and they can get that done in three to four years. So it, it all depends on, on how much you are actually doing to those aircraft. Now, Joby's been working on these for years and have been working with the FAA for years on this to figure out what they would need to make them airworthy. So uh, most likely you've got Joby, you've got Beta, you've got all of these other companies that are working with FAA to begin with saying, what, what do we need to make it airworthy? And starting there, and then the FAA kind of will back into that and say, we told them this is what they needed to make it airworthy. Therefore, that's our rules to make it airworthy. So they've already met that one. Let's go to the next certification process. Hmm. So it's, you're, you're pretty, I still think it's kind of a, a tight time frame to have these certified by next year. Right. But it but is if possible. we were to think about um, the, the timeline being eight to 12 years, we might think of it also as Joe B or beta being pretty far along in that timeline. <laughs> and the introduction of these certifications is being, maybe one of the final steps to, to them launching. Yeah. I, th I think with the FAA deciding to make them as a special case aircraft. Um, yeah, this is, this is close to the final steps. The, um, you know, Joby, they've been flying their aircraft for a couple of years now, um, doing test flights, uh, manned and unmanned. Uh, so, yeah, this is we're we're coming in on the home stretch when it comes to getting these aircraft certified and, and airworthy and actually out there in operation. Yes. Yeah, I guess you know in terms of Joby's goals, besides the certification process, to deploy that many, I don't know, should I call them planes or EV tolls or EV tolls? EV tool is the best. Yeah, they're, they're aircraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a generic term. Yeah. yeah, there are other infrastructure systems that have to be in place, right? Mm -hmm. Like charging and landing pads or, or whatever. Um, so, are their goals realistic? If, if, or I guess this is the question: Is that is the development of this infrastructure happening ahead of time, or are they expecting it's it's all going to happen at once once they're ready to deploy? Um, kind of. So Joby has been working and putting, trying to put into place operations for a while now. So um, the Joby is a little bit unique. They're not selling any of their aircraft at all. They are running the entire operation themselves. So they're working with uh, parking garages in these large cities. So they have a, a land, they can put a landing pad on top of that parking garage. Um, they are working with, uh, airports. They're working with, you know, a little bit of everybody to get these, the, the routes they're going to fly in, in there and everything. Now, the biggest thing is that urban air mobility, who's going to control the airspace for these aircraft. Now, um, over New York city, if you're a helicopter, you, you there's certain routes you have to fly in where you don't have to put in a, a flight plan at all. You just take off. You make sure you're clear, you fly the route, you fly back. Those are the ones that are there every day that um, the sightseeing aircraft out there are using are 
using those routes and that those air, that airspace. Urban air mobility is going to be a little bit different because you're going to be looking at, okay, you got 40 different uh, helicopter pads in town that are all going to be launching these EV tolls. They're all going to be flying towards the airport. What happens if you have 10 of them take off at the same time trying to take the same route? So that's part of the infrastructure that needs to be put into place is who's going to monitor that airspace and who's going to control that airspace because standard air traffic control can't do that. They don't have the ability to, to take care of all of that. So yeah, it's a little bit, it's a little bit pie in the sky. If you ask me to say we're, they're going to be making 34,000 flights per day in 2025, 2026. Um, I think they're going to be flying that, at that time, but it, there's a lot of kinks that are going to have to be worked out. And a lot of, um, a lot of that urban air mobility, uh, the airspace problem, I think is probably going to be the biggest one there because uh, they're, they're putting charging facilities out there and they're, they're going to build those charging facilities at those, those airports as well as at the, um, on those parking garages. So it's the air traffic control is the biggest problem. You, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the certification challenges, uh, you know, and I think for companies like Joby and, and, you know, a lot of these other EV tall startups, I think, you know, unfortunately for them, I think Boeing has kind of poisoned the well when it comes to uh, certification. I think, you know, part of the reason why FAA is taking so long on this is they, really got burned by Boeing on the 737 max. Um, and, and now, you know, on the, the triple seven, uh, dash nine, uh, you know, they, they just announced recently that they're delaying entry into service of that by another two years. That was supposed to originally scheduled to go into service in 2020. It's now been pushed out to 2025. Um, yeah. And then of course there's the ongoing problems with the 787. So, um, you know, I think Boeing has, exposed a lot of the gaps in FAA's processes. And now, you know, that maybe they're taking a much closer look at how they're going to do new processes for these new types of, of aircraft. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Boeing was, was allowed to basically produce their own certifications and certify those, their own aircraft um, with minor FAA oversight. And that's what hurt them. Um, you're, in Gulfstream here in town, in Rolls-Royce when I was up there at Boeing, we still had FAA personnel on site. So now if you're going to have another factory that's going to be building these aircraft, that means you have to have more FAA people on site. And if they're going to be building the numbers that they're hoping to build, you're going to have to have multiple FAA employees on site to certify those aircraft and make sure everything's right as it comes out. So yeah, Boeing definitely hurt a lot of the certification process. So uh, for me this week, um, big news, uh, some, some more expansion of uh, driverless um, automated vehicle deployments. Um, First one uh, is Argo AI, which is, uh, Majority owned by Ford and Volkswagen. They're based out of Pittsburgh. <clears throat> They've been uh, Ford's uh, primary development partner for automated driving systems over the last several years. 
and now also working with Volkswagen. They recently started testing um, their uh, the, the automated versions of the VW ID Buzz electric minivan in uh, Hamburg and Munich in Germany. Uh, they announced this week that uh, they are ready to start depl- uh, running their vehicles without a safety operator in Miami and in uh, Austin, Texas. Uh, so uh, they started running uh, some of their vehicles with safety operators uh, on Lyft doing robo-taxi services, and they've been doing delivery services with a number of companies, including Walmart, uh, for some time now. They started uh, running robo-taxis on Lyft uh, in Miami and Austin back in December. Uh, they, as of this week, they are running, uh, their, some of their vehicles without safety operators, uh, doing robo taxi services for employees only. So the, the stuff they've been doing with Lyft is open to the public. So if you're in Miami or Austin and, uh, you request a Lyft, uh, with the app, uh, you'll probably get a prompt <clears throat> if one of their vehicles is in the area, uh, asking if you want to uh, use an autonomous vehicle. And if you select yes, you might see one of uh, the Argo powered Ford Escapes uh, show up. Uh, if, uh, uh, if you are an employee of Argo or uh, in either Austin or Miami, uh, they have their own app and they've, they've been building out their own platform as well. In addition to working with Lyft uh, and using the internal Argo app, um, employees can request a ride and that ride might be coming with a driverless vehicle. So no safety operator at all. Um, Argo now joins um, <clears throat> Waymo, who's been doing this in the Phoenix area for a couple of years now, uh, running driverless vehicles, primarily in the uh, Phoenix suburbs around Chandler. Um, but uh, this week, uh, Waymo also announced that they're expanding their driverless operations in the Phoenix area into downtown Phoenix. Uh, for now, uh, the Waymo operations in downtown Phoenix, again, are only with employees uh, in, in Chandler. Uh, it's open to the public. So anyone using the Waymo One app uh, can, get a driver, can get a driverless ride if you're in one of the, the areas that's being served by those vehicles. Um, and Waymo is hoping that within the next couple of months, uh, they will expand the driverless service in downtown Phoenix uh, from their employees to uh, members of the public. Um, Waymo also has driverless vehicles operating in the San Francisco area where they got a permit uh, to start operating driverless robo-taxi services uh, earlier this year, uh, along with Cruise, which is owned uh, majority owned by General Motors. Um, both uh, Cruise and Waymo in the Bay Area uh, are in the first, they have the first phase of their permit from the California Public Utilities Commission. They, the CPUC does their permitting in, in two phases. The first phase uh, is an, essentially an evaluation phase where the companies can start giving driverless rides to members of the public, but they can't charge for them yet. Uh, the next phase after, after CPUC approves, you know, they, they've proven their safety, uh, is to actually allow them to start charging for rides. Uh, and so both Waymo and Cruise are hoping that sometime this year they will get that permit and be able to actually start generating some revenue in California. Uh, so that's now three, um, uh, three companies operating uh, driverless operations uh, in 
five different cities, uh, or yeah, four, 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 four major metropolitan areas across the U.S. Uh, Argo in Austin and Miami, um, Waymo in the uh, Phoenix area, and Waymo and Cruz both in the San Francisco area. Um, and um, there's also uh, other companies that want that are hoping to do this. Um, probably maybe by the end of the year or early next year, uh, include Zooks, uh, which is operating in San Francisco and in Las Vegas, and Motional, which uh, is hoping to launch a multi-city service uh, with driverless robo-taxis sometime uh, in 2023, uh, starting with Las Vegas, uh, where they've already been operating with safety drivers with on Lyft uh, since mid-2018. And they recently also launched uh, services with Via in Las Vegas, uh, and they plan to have uh, work with both of those partners in various cities uh, beginning in 2023 with driverless services. So we're seeing uh, expansion of driver driverless robo taxis and delivery services in limited areas. Um, in you know, in most cases, you know, with some some various other limitations. Some some cases are again they're only carrying employees. Uh, other cases are open to the public. Uh, but we're slowly creeping up on you know this starting to become a real business. Hopefully, at some time in the in the next couple of years. Um, any comments? Yeah, Sam, is this um, you know? In line with what you've predicted in the past or a little bit ahead? Um, the number of vehicles that we're seeing is fairly consistent with the forecasts that we've published uh, from Guidehouse over the last couple of years. Um, and so when we're here in the U.S., we're talking about uh, maybe a couple of hundred vehicles that are operating um, with members of the public in, in various stages, either with safety operators uh, or uh, in some cases driverless uh, that's among those four metropolitan areas of Miami, Austin, uh, Phoenix, and, and San Francisco um, with with these uh, various companies. Um, and then in total, you know, we're looking probably somewhere around a thousand vehicles in total that are operating um, in various ways, either uh, for as part of private testing or some interim pilot programs uh, for across uh, a couple of dozen different companies. Um, and then in China, in addition to that, there's, there's even more activity going on there um, with uh, a number of companies now having received permits to do some driverless robo-taxi operations in limited areas of cities uh, like Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, uh, and a couple of other cities. And that includes companies like Baidu, um, uh, AutoX, uh, Pony, AI, and WeRide. Uh, so it's it's growing uh, at a, a slow, steady pace as they gain more and more experience uh, with this and and try to prove out the safety uh, and uh, and and work out the uh, operational challenges of running these vehicles. Interesting. And what uh, would you say is the the data to date on their performance? Like how have they how have they done on safety? Are you do you have access to to that type of data or uh, a perspective on it. Yeah, so the the biggest chunk of data that's available is from California, but in in each of these places where these vehicles are operating, they are required to file reports uh, when they uh, anytime that the vehicles are involved in any kind of incident, a crash or anything like that. Um, and 
there there have been a few incidents, nothing major, nothing where anybody's been injured, uh, at, at least in in recent years. Um, and uh, you know, the Cal- California has the the biggest chunk of data. You know, uh, that's the one state where companies are required to pub- to report their um, their disengagements when safety operators have had to take over uh, from vehicles. That's kind of a, a de- uh, the the usefulness of that metric is limited um, because there's no real standard for when comp- you know when a safety when a safety operator has to take over control. Um, so some companies uh, may be taking a more conservative approach, uh, while and it, and it also varies a lot based on exactly where you're testing and time of day. Um, but uh, they also do have to report crashes, and so there have been a few minor incidents. Um, but uh, in most cases, the crashes that have occurred have usually have almost always been the result of another vehicle running into an automated vehicle. Uh, it's almost never been, uh, you know, the automated vehicle actually uh, being the cause of the crash. Um, so that's that's a good sign. Now, it's important to keep in mind also that these vehicles are all operating in urban areas where um, they're generally running at lower speeds. Uh, so even if there's a crash, the severity tends to be relatively low. Um, uh, and it's, it's generally easier to avoid a crash. Although, you know, there, in many cases, you know, especially in San Francisco and Miami and Austin, um, it's, it's a more challenging environment, um, you know, than operating say in the, the suburbs of Phoenix, you know, where there's less traffic, more wide open streets. So it's, uh, you know, it's it's hard it's hard to judge um, you know compared to human drivers. One of the interesting things that um, you know Argo's partnership with Lyft um, is that uh, Lyft is actually agreed to share data with Argo uh, about the, their their safety data from their human drivers operating on their network. Um, you know about where incidents have happened. Uh, you know, uh, from, you know, from what they're able to gather from their app, the driver smartphone app, the drivers use with Lyft, um, they're recording things like accelerometer data. Uh, so they can, to some degree, detect, you know, hard braking incidents, you know, or, you know, other potential incidents. And so they've shared that data with Argo. Uh, and Argo is using that as a baseline to compare, um, when their vehicles are operating in the same kind of, in the same environments. Uh, and that's one of the, the criteria that Argo is using to make the decision about progressing from safety operators to driverless, uh, to commercial, you know, to full-blown, uh, commercial operations with the public. Um, other companies don't necessarily have access to that same kind of data. Uh, so it's, I think we're still a ways away from really being able to say, conclusively that, um, you know, that these things are as safe or human safer than human operators. But given some of the, given what the data that just came out of uh, a NHTSA report that was published yesterday, um, it's, it's looking increasingly likely that these things might be safer than humans. Uh, NHTSA published preliminary results uh, from 2021 uh, showing uh, we've had the highest uh, number of fatalities on U.S. roads since 2007, we, almost 43,000 fatalities on U.S. roads last year, um, which is a huge jump from 2019. Um, and uh, 
they they saw increases in in almost every environment: urban driving, rural highways, um, vehicle occupants, pedestrians, cyclists. There was increases across the board last year. Um, so it's uh, things are not looking good on the roads right now. That's fascinating. And do they? Uh, I guess maybe we're getting off topic, but that is that tied to just a shift in uh, driver behaviors resulting from the pandemic, for instance, just having fewer cars on the road might've led people to drive more quickly. And then they've had to adjust to the new environment now that it's more cars on the road. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly that was the case in 2021 or in 2020, the first year of the pandemic, when we did see, you know, when, when there was lockdowns and, and a lot more people were working uh, remotely, the vehicle miles traveled in the U.S. did drop pretty significantly from prior years. Uh, but despite that, the number of fatalities increased uh, and the fatality rate increased significantly um, from 2019 to 2020. Uh, and it was the, the biggest increase seen in, in decades. Um, in 2020 or 2021, um, the number of, you had a rebound in the number of vehicle miles traveled, um, but, uh, the accident rate stayed high, you know, so, uh, and, and we are seeing more, uh, more crashes that involve, uh, driving at higher speeds. Uh, and so driver behavior is a, is a major component of this. Yeah. It's interesting too because we're we're seeing now in the new vehicle market more of these lower level driver assistance systems or automation technologies. Are we just is it still too early to see the effect of, of these technologies on the market, or have some been out there for a while and are just not proving to be as effective as we all might have hoped? It, it's a bit of both. Um, you know, we, the average age of vehicles on the road in the U.S. is a little over 12 years now. Uh, and, uh, you know, according to uh, the FARS database, the Fatal Accident Reporting System, almost 290 million registered vehicles in the U.S. Uh, so uh, the, the, the penetration of, you know, these ADAS systems, these driver assist systems, is still relatively low as a proportion of the entire fleet. It's growing steadily every year. And, you know, most new vehicles now have at least some degree of driver assistance system on there. They're, they typically have at least automatic emergency braking, uh, maybe lane keeping assist, uh, collision warnings uh, as a minimum on even entry level vehicles now. Um, but the effectiveness of some of these systems is very much in question. Uh, you know, another uh, report that came out this week uh, from AAA, uh, they actually recently conducted, they've, they've done this a couple of times now over the last several years, uh, testing the effectiveness of these driver assist systems um, at uh, the GoMentum uh, facility in uh, California, test track in California. Uh, and this most recent test that they conducted with, uh, they used a, a Subaru Forester, a Tesla Model 3, and a uh, Hyundai Santa Fe with um, hands-on level two systems. So these are systems that are uh, capable of controlling both steering and speed, uh, so acceleration and braking. Um, and they, the tests that they ran were, um, you know, approaching a slower vehicle in the same lane, um, driving in the same lane with a, a, a bicycle, um, having a, a 
pro, uh, an oncoming vehicle encroach on your lane, so crossing the center line, encroaching on the lane, and then having the cyclist turn in front of the vehicle. And the the first two tests, you know, where it was in the lane, either the cyclist or the slower vehicle in the same lane, the systems responded okay. Uh, they all uh, applied the brakes and slowed down and avoided a collision. But the oncoming vehicles and the cyclists turning in front of the vehicle, they actually did very poorly. Um, they all got into collisions. It, all three systems got into collisions uh, in, those, uh, in those scenarios. And there's a lot of other scenarios. There's been testing done by other organizations as well of these systems and, and found them to be lacking in their... Uh, uh, effectiveness. Um, and I think, you know, the automakers recognize this and policymakers are recognizing this, uh, in Europe, Euro NCAP, who does, uh, testing evaluation on new vehicles, uh, and does the safety ratings, um, is updating their standards for 2023. Uh, and among, you know, they're, they're moving from just having these driver systems as checklist items, uh, to actually testing them and evaluating the effectiveness of them. Um, before they'll give them top safety ratings. Um, and uh, similarly here, uh, NHTSA is making similar moves with the, with the U.S. NCAP uh, uh, New Car Assessment Program and IHS, the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, who does the top safety pick evaluations. They're both moving to start actually testing these systems as part of their rating systems to, uh, to, to validate you know, that they actually are useful and, and effective um, before vehicles can, can get those safety ratings. And I think that that's pushing the industry to move to adopt more capable sensors. So we're seeing more and more vehicles coming to, that are going to be coming to market with LIDAR, uh, imaging radar, uh, thermal imaging sensors, um, and uh, you know, all you know, in an effort to try to make these systems more, more useful in more conditions, but especially at night. Um, or in harsh lighting conditions where the simple camera systems that are on most vehicles today um, tend to be overwhelmed uh, or just not work very well. Hmm. All right. Well, unfortunately, uh, Joe uh, had some technical difficulties and had to drop off. Uh, so uh, I think we'll wrap it up there for this week. Uh, any final thoughts from you guys? None for me. None Thanks, for me. All right. Well, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. See you guys. Thanks.